Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are looking ahead to Halloween, and uh, we're going to be talking with uh, a couple people involved in a new anthology called Putting the Supernatural in Its Place. This is an anthology out from University of Utah Press. It explores zombies, vampires, witches, demented nuns, mediums, and ghosts in their natural and unnatural habitats while making sense of the current ubiquity of the supernatural on the Internet, in movies, tourism, and in places like New Orleans. And uh, we're uh, welcoming in uh, Jeannie Thomas, who's editor of this uh, volume and who is uh, also professor and head of the Department of English at Utah State University. Welcome to the program. Nice to be here. We also uh, welcome in Lynn McNeil, uh, who is with the USU Folklore uh, Program here at USU and uh, contributed a chapter to the ontology. Thanks. Uh, welcome back to the program. Glad to be here. We were here uh, last year, Lynn, with the storyteller uh, Daniel Bishop. We heard some uh, great stories, and uh, I'm hoping that we can get some more great stories from our listeners. If you have a story of your encounter with the supernatural, I'd love to hear it. You can reach us uh, by phone. We have the phone lines open at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can email us to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. And I have up... Glenn's story from uh, last year from the Ona Basin, the headless horseman roaming the oil fields. I'll get to that if we have time. I- I'm still creeped out oh, by, yeah. by, by that story. I, well, maybe because I grew up in the Ona Basin. And I, maybe I could have encountered a headless horseman out there. Utah's a wonderful place for scary stories. The whole state is just rife with them. Well, why do you think that is? That's a really good question. I imagine everyone from everywhere believes that where they're from is rife with scary stories, but we've got some really good landscapes for it mm-hmm. here in Utah, as is discussed in this book. One of those being St. Anne's Retreat, just up, up Logan Canyon. Yeah, that's that's an amazing site. I think a lot of times the visible um, parts of the landscape or things on the landscape can help create legends. So St. Anne's, you're in a wilderness area, and you've got cabins, which... It's fairly normal, but then you've got a swimming pool, which is fairly abnormal, and so people are going to talk about it. And then in Lisa Gabbert's fascinating chapter, she gives you all these great archival photographs, and one of them there are all these nuns in their habits with wimples up the canyon at St. Anne's. If you saw that, you're Mm going to talk about it. Yeah, I would imagine. I would imagine. So uh, since we mentioned it, what what is the legend? What's the... There are just a ton of versions, but um, it's actually goes back to an old medieval legend. Basic story is that nuns are having illicit sex with priests or, in some Logan versions, sheep herders or miners, little western spin on it there. And then they have babies that they have to get rid of, so they drown them in the swimming pool, and there are these horrible stories about that, which, of course, not based in any truth, and their old medieval legends just relocated to Logan, Utah. Mm. And then you get people going up. Legend trippers. Legend trippers who want to be at that place. Mm -hmm. And there have been some problems at St. Anne's. They they had to... Serious problems. Close it, you know, block it off. Yeah, and there were... um, just right before I came here in the late 90s, there were some people who basically kind of assumed a vigilante caretaker role and held um, large groups of Halloween legend trippers hostage there and created a lot of community controversy. At first, the police came and sort of the kids were punished. And then as things got looked into more, one of them actually ended up um, drawing some jail time for holding people against their will, which mm-hmm. It's not good. Created a lot of controversy in the community, too. The kids were trespassing. Did they deserve this? Well, do you deserve to be held against your will for this kind of common adolescent behavior of legend tripping? And so those conversations went back and forth. But it was pretty serious. And and um, there were guns there, and some of the kids were fairly seriously roughed up. Mm. And then this all potentially gets folded into you know, the legend of the place. Exactly, exactly. It usually takes a little while Mm -hmm. for actual scary, tragic events, particularly if they're very tragic, to get folded in, because you have to have a little bit of psychic distance from the events in order to talk about them. If they're too painful, they're too hard to talk about in legend. So it takes a few years. And now what you see in that legend are, um, historically, there would be references to dogs barking. Now you see dogs and guns. And Mm -hmm. I think the guns comes from... The incident with the mm-hmm. 
um, caretakers. In other words, people are hearing dogs barking and guns yep. going off, and you, you can't explain it. Right. Kind of yeah. Yeah, that's, that's kind of scary. Uh, I wonder, Lynn, this idea of legend tripping. Mm. And Gene Thomas in the introduction to the book talks about, uh, you know, we run away from scary things, but we also run toward scary things. This oh, yeah. This is the ultimate. And, and people do, you know, they visit... I'm trying to imagine the creepiest thing that that I could I could do, and I I, I have talked to people who go to um, old insane asylums. Absolutely, you've never been to the Weeping Woman I, at I, midnight. I haven't. No, chanted to see if she'll cry <laughs> tears of blood for you. Neither have I. This, I've only been there during the day. And this is in Logan Cemetery. Yes, this is right here on campus in our cemetery. Cemetery. There's a statue. The Cronquist family uh, plot has a large statue of a a woman sort of kneeling down and with her face bent into her hand. And according to legend, if you go there at the right time, which might be midnight or during the night or the night of a full moon or on Halloween and chant, weep, woman, weep or cry, lady, cry, she will cry. Tears of blood Mm. sometimes, you know, just normal tears other times depends on who you talk to. But I've got to say I've I'm way too cowardly to go yeah. there at midnight. Yeah. But it's it's compelling, you know, when you go look at the statue. They recently washed it and that erased some of the evidence, I mm-hmm. think. But in the past when I've been there, you can definitely see, you know, evidence of past water gathering in her eye sockets, which, you know, the science minded among us will say it's the sprinklers. Right. Morning dew, but sure adds to that creepy element when yeah. you're when you're out legend tripping. Should say the uh, Yosu Folklore Club is, uh, is going to go to the Weeping Woman statue. 6 p.m., not midnight, but 6 p.m., right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so on, a good Halloween. intermediary, probably right. safe, late enough to be scary yeah. sort of time. Now, uh, I guess you're trying to get, you know, moderately scared. Is that what you're, what you're trying to do? Yeah, I think so. Legend tripping is Legend tripping is one of the things that makes legends such a fun genre of folklore because it goes beyond the telling and into action. You get to participate in this and see for yourself and try it out. And there's all sorts of ways that we can do this, going to a site that's haunted or even, you know, with your friends playing light as a feather, stiff as a board or Mm. using a Ouija board or holding a seance and things like that let you really get into this question of, Mm. is this true? Is this real? Right. Yeah, I totally would go at midnight. And in Uh fact, I think maybe I became a folklorist because I did when I was in high school. I remember climbing over a cemetery fence at midnight that had barbed wire on the top and ripping a new pair of pants because I was <laughs> a dedicated legend tripper. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what's going on there when, when you know, you go legend tripping? Well, it's um, like a lot of human behavior. It's patterned. A lot of people do it. And we've done it across cultures and throughout history. And it's really... A secular descendant of pilgrimage. So what you're trying to do with pilgrimage is you're trying to go to a spiritual site, another worldly site, and you're trying to connect with it somehow, have an experience, or pick up something there that will improve or enrich your life. Legend trippers aren't necessarily going to a holy well to get a blessing or anything like that, but they're going to another worldly site to have an experience there that will enrich their boring Friday night, perhaps. Yeah. We've heard on previous programs, and I'm, I'm thinking out, put out the appeal to our listeners, that if you have haunted places, if you have a haunted place, you could tell us about it. We'd love to hear about it. The number is 1-800-826-1495 uh, so that I can avoid it, and maybe you can go toward it. A haunted place would be interesting to hear about. Or upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at uh, gmail.com. Uh, in a previous program, we heard about uh, there's a haunted dorm, apparently, at uh, Southern Utah University. Mm-hmm. Um, College campuses are great places for hauntings to happen. Yeah. You know, it wonderfully exemplifies the stresses of college life and also helps put things in perspective a little bit. You know, what's a scary final exam in the face of being forever relegated to your college dorm for all eternity. Is that where it comes from, do you think? We're putting things in perspective? Perhaps. I think think probably, depending on the story, they come from a lot of different places. But certainly, you know, we see college 
haunting stories taking on the themes of stresses of school, getting overwhelmed, um, issues with boyfriends and girlfriends and friends and, you know, fraternity and sorority, brothers and sisters and things like that. So they're nice. Legends adapt themselves really well to where they happen and Mm -hmm. they tend to stick best when they tell us something about the experience that we're having at this moment, giving us a good warning or making us feel a little bit better about our own situations. Yeah. Of course, people that tell you they experienced this, they, you know, they won't give you this analysis that you just gave. They'll just say, I experienced this, right? Yeah, I saw this ghost. I heard this voice, whatever it was. Yeah, which is in itself a really interesting experience, you know, the way that we take what happens to us and use a variety of interpretive frames that we have available to figure it out. And when you talk to a lot of people about the supernatural, we sort of have it in our minds that some people might be especially gullible or especially inclined to think that way. And what we find is that oftentimes people are being surprisingly rational. They've gone through, well, it couldn't have been this normal explanation. It couldn't have been this normal explanation. And and the supernatural conclusion sometimes is a accumulation of evidence in favor of that option. So mm-hmm. people are people are thinking about this stuff more than we sometimes give them credit for. Yeah. Gene Thomas, I wonder if we'd talk a little bit about the, the place in the title, putting supernatural in, in its place. One one chapter is on New Orleans. Yeah. This is a, known as a haunted city. There, yeah. Charleston, South Carolina is another one. Yeah. Uh, tell me a bit about New Orleans. New Orleans is a, a wonderfully haunted city, I think. And um, when I think of haunted cities, the two biggies I think of are, of course, Salem and New Orleans. Um, New Orleans is particularly interesting because it pick it picks up on the history of the place. And you go to New Orleans, and of course, it's a beautiful city. And you go to the Garden District, and there are all these beautiful mansions. But they were built on the bodies of slaves, basically, you know, made out of the exploitation of human bodies and the profits of slavery. And we forget that, but the legend remembers it. The supernatural stories remember it. So the most uh, famous legend in New Orleans is about a house haunted by slaves and based on a real person who was cruel to her slaves. Um, American Horror Story also picked up on that story, and and as the media does, uh, exaggerated it in great detail, but used it as a basis for a storyline in that TV series. Um, so, it, it, uh, but maybe you could tell me the. Is there a story you could tell me from from New Orleans? Uh, sure, the LaLaurie story, the LaLaurie Mansion, which um, it probably a lot of people remember the actor Nicolas Cage. He's one of the most famous people who has owned it. He also has a really weird tombstone in the New Orleans cemetery. New Orleans has some good cemetery legends too, but anyway. Um, he doesn't own it now. He lost it, I think, due to tax trouble. But it, um, in the 19th century, um, there was a fire there. And supposedly people discovered that this woman, Madame LaLaurie, had mistreated her slaves horribly, kept them in chains, um, beat them. There are some versions that sort of give them weird scientific experiments done on them and so they the slaves burned down the house in um, rather than continue in this horrible existence and so you and you get stories of a slave child jumping from the roof um, and ongoing it used to be apartments before it was redone into back into its former glory of 19th century glory now it's pretty nice yeah, uh, uh, creepy. If you, if you very if you creepy. See, see this, I guess, or and even to think about it. Yeah, and reminding people of a real social evil. Yeah, something really evil, and saying, you know, that slavery that made New Orleans, it's here and mm-hmm. it's in this story. Now, I think the story tries to temper it by saying other white people were outraged by this in the legends, but it still reminds you that. You know, all this beauty came at a significant human cost. Hmm. Let's take a break. When we come back, more uh, stories of the supernatural, including there's, there's a cave in Japan, I believe, yeah. right? I hear about that. And uh, the supernatural on the Internet. That's especially that Lynn McNeil uh, studies. Um, we'll get into some uh, some fun, uh, what what are they, Twihards? And Buffistas. Buffistas. Oh, yes. There, there's a battle 
uh, brewing. And we'll talk about that. And I'd love to hear your scary story uh, at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. Are there haunted places? Have you encountered the supernatural? Um, let me just uh, share this from Glenn in the Ona Basin. He shared this about a year ago, um, or I think more. Um, he says, I used to haul crude oil from oil wells. We have an area in central Duchesne County called the Coke Field. It was originally operated by the infamous Coke Brothers business and developed in the 1970s and early 80s. The Coke Field is very remote and quite rugged. Many oil field workers claim to have seen a headless horseman. I first heard about this when I was dispatched with the, to a load out in the field, probably 1999. Legend has it the local natives beheaded a party of Spanish prospectors, and this headless horseman is one of them. Many of my former crude haulers refused to go into the Coke field at night. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's good stuff. You have a story. We'd love to hear you uh, share it. 1-800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com. Uh, following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our members and the 13th annual Moab Folk Festival. November 6th through the 8th, featuring music, food vendors, and arts and crafts. Details at moabfolkfestival.com. Yet another nugget from our Marketplace Edison Research National Economic Poll. Pretty much across the board, Americans feel there ought to be a government safety net. It's just you've got to take care of your, your health, you've got to take care of people eating, you've got to have make sure there's a roof over their head. More complicated is who ought to pay for it. I'm Kai Rizdal, that and the day's business news next time on Marketplace from APN. Join us Wednesday night at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are exploring the supernatural. The book is a new anthology, Putting the Supernatural in Its Place. It's out from University of Utah Press and explores zombies, vampires, witches, demented nuns, mediums, and ghosts. It looks at uh, haunted places like New Orleans. Also, the supernatural in the Internet, movies, uh, tourism. We're going to be talking about Salem, Massachusetts. We'll talk about that haunted cave in uh, Japan, uh, Some uh, many, many different places. Uh, and we'd love to hear your story at 1-800-826-1495, or you can uh, email us to upraxis at gmail.com. A couple of events, uh, by the way, I'm talking with uh, Jeannie Thomas, who edited uh, this book, and uh, she is head of the English department at Utah State University. Uh, she will be giving a uh, talk for the Center for Women and Gender Brown Bag Series. It's called Salem Witch Tourism, and that is on uh, Thursday, Thursday tomorrow. Uh, from noon to one in the Merrill Kazir Library Room 208. Bring a sack lunch and come listen. And everyone is welcome to that. Um, the USU Folklore Program is uh, gathering at 6 p.m. at the Weeping Woman Statue in the Logan City Cemetery, 6 p.m. on uh, Friday, day before Halloween. Uh, Lynn McNeil is with us. She's with the USU Folklore Program, and she is uh, giving a talk uh, at the Anthropology Museum on Friday at 5 p.m. What's your talk on? Ghost hunting. Ghost hunting. Largely. Questions of belief and proof and evidence and all those sort of exciting things that come up when we talk about ghosts and hauntings. So that's 5 p.m. at the Anthropology Museum on the USU campus. Um, and uh, all of that, of course, if you're in the Logan area, we'd love to hear about your event. You can uh, call us at 1-800-826-1495 or uh, email us at gmail.com. Uh, the USU Philosophy Club is doing a Monty Python-themed event. That sounds like fun. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, a bunch of Monty Python uh, scenes are running through my head right now. Um, and I'm not sure if I can pull this up fast. I'll have to do that the next break. But uh, I think the Latino Club is doing a a uh, day of the dead um event as well so a lot of a lot of things happening and we're talking about the supernatural on the program uh, program today so t uh, tell me about lily dale oh lily dale is a great place it's uh in new york and it was founded by spiritualists in the 19th century so these are people who literally as part of their religious beliefs you talk to the dead um, 19th century spiritualism was also connected with feminism, early feminism, because this was women having a public voice, and this was one way they could do it. 
Today, um, Lilydale is this charming community in New York. Um, Elizabeth Tucker writes about it in her chapter. And a lot of mediums live there. And so um, she talks about not teenagers going legend tripping, but middle-aged women like myself going legend tripping there who've got a few miles on us and been beaten up a little bit and have to deal with hard knocks in life and loss and how Lilydale can become a place of reenchantment or a place of healing or a place of, of coping by people um, trying to connect with loved ones that they've lost. Hmm. Try to reach beyond this world. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. yeah. And Lilydale has um, honestly sometimes mediums like in Salem mediums can actually defraud people and charge them thousands of dollars for black marks on their auras that need to be cleaned off and stuff like that. So the city actually has to police that. But you don't tend to hear that kind of thing so much in Lilydale. They watch it pretty closely, and there's a lot of charm there and a lot of support for people. Um, that's what comes through in a lot of the writing about Lilydale. So a lot of people go there just to, to seek out a medium and mm-hmm. talk with someone who's passed on. That's yep. what, what happens. Interesting. Tell me about Salem. You've... You've studied Salem. You've visited Salem. Yeah, I've been um, going to Salem for 10 years. And Salem is interesting because it's got this very conflicted witch identity. And of course, we all know from Hawthorne and Ar- Arthur Miller about the witch trials of 1692, where um, several people were hanged as witches, and one person was pressed to death famously because he wouldn't enter a plea. And um, then hundreds of people were accused. So there's a real tragedy there. And yet today, if you go to Salem, it's very kitschy, very touristy. And you have um, the Salem witch history. And you have now neo-pagan witches, various types of modern religious witches. And you also have the Halloween witch Uh, present on the streets of Salem. So you range from the tragic to the very lighthearted, and that can cause cognitive dissonance for Mm. some folks and a lot of parking trouble in October (laughs) if you go to Salem. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Ranging from, you know, a scary experience to I can't get parking. Yeah, that's quite the the range. Um, So tell me about this this range. And some in the book, and I think this might have been associated with the controversy that arose over a a statue that went up to Samantha and Bewitched. Yeah, in 2005, the city let TV Land um, donate a statue to the city and put it up. And they put it in this little park area. And one of the reasons the city wanted that done is because they felt like that would help keep that area vital. And it would draw people to it. It would bring life to the streets and keep it from going into decline. But it was controversial because if you belong to the, what Salem is about one witch, and that's the witch of 1692, then they're saying, what the heck is Samantha doing here? She has nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. But there also is this fall festival started by businessmen that runs the entire month of October called Haunted Happenings. And there, um, Salem has lost a lot of its economic basis, and people want to live there. And they have to live with the story, so sometimes they make a living from it. And so those people were like, yeah, this will boost tourism. And so there's a was a great article in the Salem News about the local modern witch community fighting with the local historical preservation kind of crowd about, this is serious, this is fun. And that's a debate that's been going on in Salem for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Hawthorne even talks about it in some of his early stories about the the, the Puritan um, seriousness and trying to get rid of, of pre-Christian customs and holidays. And mm-hmm. Maypole of Marymount is a famous expression of that. So you see it's still being enacted on the streets of Salem. Mm-hmm. Uh, during one of those arguments, uh, somebody said, apparently, you know, we wouldn't have fun with the Holocaust. Right, right. And I think the the witches would say that what you have is you have all these different kinds of witch, which is a word that has multiple meanings. Mm. And so we're not making fun of the 1692 witches. We're looking, when you do haunted happenings, we're looking at the Halloween witch, which is about fun. You know, we've come, there's the, all that historical and emotional distance. And now with Halloween, the witch has become this fun, playful thing. Mm. And um, as I was watching it and talking to people on the streets, attending the various activities, um, people can switch 
gears. It's like you know what the word witch means depending on the context, whether it means that or witch or this woman in a pointy hat. And they do the same thing when dealing with the different faces of the witch in Salem. Like when you're at the witch trials memorial, that's that's the tragic, somber, historical face of the witch. Um, when you're there for haunted happenings on Halloween night, you're participating in that contemporary holiday. So they shift gears and they read the symbols differently. And I think pr- people are fairly adept at doing that. Although you can see why people get upset and there is some definite tackiness. But mm-hmm. I give Salem huge credit because if you look at the witch trials, I think the lesson that we can learn is how important tolerance is. Mm-hmm. And Salem uh, tolerates a lot of supernatural weirdness. And I think in a very nice way, it's learned that lesson well, because mm-hmm. it's not always easy. Yeah. You're sort of trapped, aren't you? If you're yeah. a town father, <laughs> I guess a lot of the economy depends on. Yeah. And I, I which say tourism. Yep, it does. That's a huge factor in the economy and particularly the haunted happenings month is really important to the local economy. And I say that I call it an invasive narrative. This is a narrative that is just spread everywhere. And if, and if you live in Salem, you can't escape it. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to you're going to have to confront the figure of the witch. Uh, you know, like uh, I'll pick up my hometown in Vernal. You're you're probably going to reach for whatever you can get. So you reach for Butch Cassidy. Yep. You know, I also think dinosaurs and dinosaurs. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, invasive narratives are stories where if you go someplace else, the first thing people say about you is like when I say I'm from Utah, they say, oh, polygamy. Mm -hmm. You know, the polygamists follow me around, but they don't create the parking problems like Salemites have to deal with. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Uh, If you just joined us, we're uh, talking about the supernatural. The book is putting the supernatural in its place. Folklore, the hypermodern and the ethereal. It's edited by uh, Jeannie Thomas. She is head of the USU English Department, and uh, she wrote about uh, one of her specialties, Salem. We've been talking about that. Uh, Also, we'll get to uh, talking about this haunted cave in in Japan, and we'll be talking next about the Internet. And we have with us uh, Lynn McNeil, uh, who is with the USU Folklore uh, Program. Um, And let me just mention a couple of these events again. Jeannie Thomas will uh, be uh, presenting at a a brown bag uh, uh, series for the Center for Women and Gender at USU. Uh, her topic, Salem Witch Tourism, and that is uh, tomorrow, Thursday, at noon in Merrill Kazir Library, room 208. Bring a sack lunch and come listen. The USU Folklore Program will be gathering on October 30th, Friday, um, at the Logan City Cemetery at the Weeping Woman Statue, 6 p.m. Lynn McNeil is uh, giving a talk at the Anthropo- Anthropology Museum on the USU campus on Friday at 5 p.m. I'll just mention that uh, Philosophy Club Monty Python event again. I'll get some more details on that. Um, so, Lynn McNeil, you you study uh, folklore, mm-hmm. and in this case, uh, talking about supernatural, supernatural on the internet. Yeah, which is a really fun place to think about supernatural belief because the question of belief gets made really complicated when you move offline to online. And there's no place there right i mean there is but there isn't yeah um you know so there there are some some beliefs that are very much rooted in personal experience yeah people who talk about bigfoot they actually saw bigfoot mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. at least they'll tell you they did you know mm-hmm. i saw a ghost you actually saw it. but the internet is a little more complicated yeah well and vampires are a little bit more complicated as well i think you know vampires are so ubiquitous in popular culture right now and yet they don't have the same place in folk legendry that bigfoot or or ghosts or ufos and aliens might have as well where people really claim personal experience with them on a supernatural level certainly there's an understanding that there are people who identify with a vampire lifestyle there are people who drink blood or who um, practice psychic vampirism um, or who are, you know, awake at night and asleep during the day. And there's a general understanding that this is a lifestyle of vampirism, but is not the immortal undead of, you know, say, Dracula or a figure like that. And so the ubiquity of the vampire becomes sort of interesting when people don't have that sense of, oh, no, I think I saw a vampire because 
how do we engage then? How do we engage with that supernatural creature on sort of the personal folk level? And one of the ways that we do it, as I talk about in, in Jeannie's book, is that by going online, we get that same level of engagement, that same personal activity, but we can do it with fiction. We don't we don't require that that same offline pervasive sense of possibility or or even plausibility that we do. We can create whole worlds where we get to engage with and take part in and participate among vampires. And it's okay that it's fictional because we've sort of created a, a temporary frame where we're engaging in fiction. And I think it's fabulous that the internet allows people to do that. Uh, and some of the most immersive experiences in the places that people want to inhabit, and they do want to inhabit them, don't they? Mm-hmm. So we, were t- we talk about Buffy the Vampire Slayer mm-hmm. Absolutely. on television. And we talk about Twilight series mm-hmm. yeah. by you know uh, Utah author yeah, and, Stephanie Meyer. And both of those worlds are are appealing places. Yeah, I mean, you, if you'd think about the reality of it, they're probably not. People die sort of at an astonishing rate in both Sunnydale, California, and Forks, Washington, the two places where those those are set. But the world that's generated is sort of the, the kind of place you want to climb into and be. You know, we talk about invasive narratives, as Jeannie has, and you think about the impact of the Twilight Saga on Forks, Washington, the actual town. There's an invasive narrative mm-hmm. there as well. But people engaging with fiction are doing it in a variety of ways, through fan fiction, as the, the chapter discusses, through internet memes, imagery, developing sort of this whole lexicon of folk speech that that centers around this fandom that really lets people do do that stuff we want to do with our legends, which is engage, go legend tripping, take part in these things. And, you know, it, people have found a way to do it and just rerouting around the fact that it's fiction. That becomes a side issue online. Uh, so it becomes real to you in a certain sense. Yeah, at but, least. But I guess not as real as believing that it actually exists. Yeah, but it's real a, on a certain level. That's a complicated question, I think. And that's something that a lot of folklorists are interested in right now, especially with other internet-based legends that, you know, explode beyond the confines of the internet and that much more drastically blur the boundary between fiction and reality, mm-hmm. figures like Slenderman and mm-hmm. and other creepypasta ideas online that that aren't fiction in the way that a novel is or a television show is, and yet can be proven, you know, to to be completely fictive, but merge much more readily into true, genuine belief. Slenderman's an interesting example. It's I mean, it's very pervasive. He's new. Yeah. And he was created from whole cloth, right? You can, 2009. You can point it right to when, can, when he was created. Yes, exactly. We can have a... It, it is after this point that Slenderman came into existence, though many retrofitted back histories have been created okay. that are very, very believable. And a lot of very intelligent people get caught up in starting to do a little bit of online searching. And some of those fabricated backstories sound more believable than the rather mundane. There was a challenge online to create paranormal imagery. Hmm. And someone did a really good job. Oh, this was that, that's why. That is okay. where Slender Man came from. Uh, and the purpose was, you know, to meet that challenge, I guess, and, yeah, and to, to create this fictional. Good, scary picture. And and yet that takes on a life of its own. Very much so. People have acted on this. Mm-hmm. Right? People have, yes. The very unfortunate incidents in Wisconsin of two young girls stabbing a classmate of theirs and claiming to have done it for Slender Man. And even beyond that, there's just, I mean, more and more proliferating stories of people seeing Slender Man, being influenced by Slender Man, um, Lots of offline experiences. This has entered our, you know, conscious as a society. And mm-hmm. it's really definitely offline as much as online now, which is a strange form of fiction that's not, you know, perfectly correlating with vampires online. It's a it's a murky area, this mm-hmm. question of belief on the Internet or belief influenced by the Internet. Yeah. I wonder, uh, take a break here pretty soon, but I wonder if I could have you read uh, just the, your your two quotes at the beginning of your, of your chapter, Lynn. Yeah, I think these are, these are two quotes that I think highlight uh, a lot about the current state of vampire folklore. Um, one is actually Jean-Jacques Rousseau saying, if there is 
in this world a well-attested account. It is that of vampires. Nothing is lacking. Official reports, affidavits of well-known people, of surgeons, of priests, of magistrates. The judicial proof is most complete. And with all that, who is there who believes in vampires? Hmm. And then the second one is... um, from a woman named Amber Lynn from an online web forum dedicated to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And she says, because I would tell people that I watched the show and people would go, Buffy the Vampire Slayer? And then I'd feel silly. And this was a place to go where I didn't feel silly. It made me feel like it was okay for me to watch the show and like it as much as I did. A place that I felt like I belonged to and I could go anytime I wanted and I didn't have to worry about being mocked or judged unless it was in a fun way. (laughs) So that's the experience that that uh, that she's having. Amberlynn is. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of people have, yeah. And and the 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 folklore there is much more about a fandom than about mm-hmm. supernatural belief, and yet you can't really extract the fact that it's about vampires mm-hmm. from that either. And I wonder, it seems to be growing. You know, Comic Con is huge, including mm-hmm. in Salt Lake. Mm-hmm. People dress up. You know. When you capture people's imagination, you can change their behavior. And I think we see this over and over again with this book. Uh, I think I saw it most clearly or most interestingly for me with zombies. I sort of thought zombies is, you know, rotting corpses, scary stuff. But as I was working with the chapter on zombie movies, uh, Michael Coven, the author there, made me realize how... um, how useful they are. And I kind of developed a little crush on zombies because they're so useful. The, the Center for Disease Control uses them to help people get prepared for emergencies, and it really works. They did it as a joke, mm-hmm. and then they were like, oh my gosh, they're really getting their emergency kits. They're planning evacuation routes. We can help them prepare for earthquakes and huge storms by getting these zombie narratives out there. So these stories are really culturally useful, even if you don't have any level of belief in them, like mm. like vampires or zombies. Jeannie, one of yeah. my favorite comments in the introduction is you talking about discussing with your son, if he's asking, hey, when the zombie apocalypse happens, can I borrow the weed whacker? <laughs> yeah, he wanted the hori hori knife, the weed whacker, the big snowblower. He was lining up all the... And people get in these informal folk conversations about... Um, What are you going to do during the zombie apocalypse? I used to give my daughter a bad time about having this huge purse, and she'd carry bottles of water. And I said, you're going to get back trouble. And she said, no, I'll be prepared for the zombie apocalypse. (laughs) So this popular culture thing entered into folk channels, and you see these blending levels of culture in interesting ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, it's it's worth worth a visit to the CDC's zombie apocalypse site. You can prepare your kit and... And it has a good application, as you say, Jeannie Thomas. I wonder, uh, is there a downside to this? Um, you know, if we're, if we're all spending too much time dressing up and, <laughs> and going to conventions or, or spending you know, too much time on the Internet, or am I just being curmudgeonly there? That's an interesting question. I'm, I, my answer would be generally no. I think... I think that what technology has allowed us to do these days is to engage at a level at which um, we weren't able to before, and certainly at a at a breadth at which we were not able to achieve before. I mean, we've always had imaginative play. That's always existed. So anything that anyone liked, whether it was a book or a you know television series more contemporarily, we've always been able to play and enact that and engage with fantasy on that level, now we're able to do it in a way that much more closely mimics the stuff we're engaging with. So one of the things I talk about in in my chapter in this book is Star Wars. When it came out in the 1970s, everyone was playing Star Wars. That was the thing to do, right? You were Princess Leia, you were Han Solo, you were Luke Skywalker. And then we fast forward to the 2000s, and we have one of the most famous viral videos of all time, Star Wars Kid, where someone's engaging in play that has been common for 30-something years by that point, but suddenly it's mass broadcast. It, It goes around the world, and suddenly we have the ability to CGI in lightsabers for him and add a soundtrack and add special effects and all of this, and that's taking play and and immersion in fantasy to a level that we haven't been able to do for ourselves. 
until very recently. For those who are not familiar with this, this is a kid doing battle with a, what is it? A, it's a golf a, ball retriever. Golf ball retriever. <laughs> Which is, it's yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's great. I, I, you could see it as a little sad on one level, but but I think people generally view it positively. Yeah. Well, he got made fun of. He yeah. did. Mm-hmm. He had to, he had, he struggled a lot being mm-hmm. the. Yeah. The central figure of that viral video. He ended up changing schools and and really struggling with mm-hmm. the fame that that the unwanted fame yeah. that that got yeah. to, for him. But he has risen above since and become oh, a good. successful, happy that's person. Good. I'm glad. Uh, let's uh, take another break. When we come back, more final segment on putting the supernatural in its place. We're talking with Jeannie Thomas and Lynn McNeil. And uh, you can join the program as well at upraxcess at gmail.com or uh, 1-800-826-1495. I'm Jeremy Hobson in San Francisco, which is booming, and young tech executives are in bidding wars to buy luxury high-rise condos. I lost out on one place due to being too slow, and I lost out on another place due to coming in too low. You learn each of those lessons once. That's next time on Here and Now. Join us Wednesday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. What is a subject that you are passionate about? What do you know more about than most? Utah Public Radio wants you to share your knowledge and become a source for the Utah Public Insight Network, a new collaborative effort between UPR and the Salt Lake Tribune. Information you share could help our reporters create more in-depth stories on the things that you care about or more meaningful discussion on our flagship program, Access Utah. Become a source today. Join UPIN. For more information, visit us online at upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have another 10 minutes left in our conversation. Um, and we're talking with Jeannie Thomas and uh, Lynn McNeil. They are contributors uh, to this book, The Putting Supernatural in Its Place. It's out from University of Utah Press. Jeannie Thomas is the editor. We're talking about the supernatural on the program today, ahead of uh, Halloween. I pulled up this information on the USU Philosophy Club. Uh, their celebration is, but how do you know she's a witch? <laughs> a reference to uh, the Holy Grail. And um, so that that is uh, today, 7 p.m. at Old Main 115. All are welcome. The USU Latino uh, Creative Society and USU Latino Student Union will present Day of the Dead, Dia de los Muertos procession, and that is uh, begin at the Block A in front of the Old Main on Thursday at 11.30. And then uh, events involving my guest today, uh, Center for Women and Gender at USU is presenting a brown bag uh, series with uh, Jeannie Thomas. Salem Witch Tourism will be her topic, and that is uh, Thursday at noon in Merrill Kazir Library Room 208. And the USU Folklore Program is gathering on Friday at 6 p.m. at the Logan City Cemetery at the Weeping Woman Statue for an event there. And Lynn McNeil is giving a talk at the Anthropology Museum on Friday at 5 p.m. So lots uh, that you could you could go to. Um, I wonder, just in the time we have left, at Lynn McNeil, there, I was interested to read in your chapter. There's a bit of a back and forth between the Buffistas and the Twihards. Yes, this is a long-standing, long-standing face-off here that we have between vampire fandoms. There's, you know, it's not always antagonistic but it is i think at its most entertaining when it is at its most antagonistic mm-hmm. and we get sort of you know two strangely similar depictions of vampire culture here both set in high school which tells us something about what we think of high school that you know demonic forces fit in quite well there um and both with vampires who are verging on superheroes you know attractive strong, powerful, alluring figures, but but sort of divergent female leads is often the, the path that this takes. So online we see a lot of internet memes and humorous images where um, Buffy stakes Edward <laughs> and that's his final demise. Mm-hmm. Um, memes that take Buffy and her love interest Angel and sort of hold them up as a much better example of, of romance than Bella and Edward might be. So So yeah, it's a fun, it's a it's a fun opposition to be tracking. I wonder, uh, you know, vampires have been with us for a long time. Zombies, I think, is a little more recent phenomenon, and, and zombies have just taken off. We have these, you know, I, I'm not sure what we call them. We we uh, we chased zombies, split up into teams, and uh, mm. 
Oh, zombies versus humans. Zombies versus humans, zombie yes. Zombie pub crawls. Yes. Zombie walks to raise money for various charitable causes. Logan usually has a zombie right. walk to raise money for the local food bank. Yeah. And so I wonder what's going on uh, with, I think we're trying to society work through some anxieties. You bet. But I wonder what the difference is between vampires and zombies, what we're, what we're working on. Well, a lot of people talk about zombies as... Uh, popular right now because we've been in an economic downturn. We've had a lot of uh, horrible things happen, 9-11. And so zombies sort of speak to the dark times that we feel we're in. It's a little apocalyptic, a little dystopian there. Um, There's some great zombie movies where you see these soulless, mindless beings staggering through shopping malls. Sometimes people think it's a comment on our consumer culture. Mm and just the soulless nature of modern culture. So people think zombies are about that. I was kind of taken um, how international they are in the movies and how there's this um, just way more zombie movies than I knew. And I sort of think of them as schlocky, which they are indeed, but they were way more political than I had any idea. Um, Some have little global warming themes or anti-colonialist message, along with all the gore and shuffling and references to brains. Mm -hmm. Lynn, what about vampires? You know, vampires and zombies are, are so interesting together because they share so many similarities. I mean, they're both corpses that are animated, and they both uh, perpetuate themselves through contagion, through bites, through, um, you know, that, that sort of viral model that we might have. And one of the things that I see happening is, you know, early vampires, the vampire of folklore, much, much closer resembled what we would call zombies today than vampires as we have them in either Buffy or Twilight or Dracula, for that matter. Um, much more of the undead, rotting corpse. And, you know, a lot of scholars have pointed out how this this shift that happened in vampire depiction, often attributed to Anne Rice, in that vampires went from undead to immortal, which made them uh, more of a positive character, the protagonist of their own stories, oftentimes. And I think we needed zombies to remind us that being dead is gross mm-hmm. and unpleasant and, and zombies lack agency. And I think that's a, a big thing. These Our vampires now get to do whatever they want. They're wealthy and beautiful and super strong. And zombies are a mindless horde. And I think that we want to grapple with that, that, that fear that we might be able to be affected by a contagion that would strip us of our agency. Mm. Uh, here is a response to my question about, uh, uh, you know, supernatural. This is uh, Christine. She says, uh, uh, hi, Tom, Jeannie, and Lynn. There are a lot of ghost stories in Park City and a ghost tour starting at the museum in Old Town. Our condos are called the Yellow Slicker Condos, named after a ghost in a nearby mine. Here's the story. This is from Christine Holt. As the legend goes, the ghost of a man in a yellow raincoat showed up periodically in the Park City mines. His appearance was seen as a bad omen as it almost always preceded an accident. He was reportedly spotted the day before the Daily West mine explosion in 1902. Mm-hmm. So thanks for that, uh, Christine. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a, a, a kind of cheeky for them to name the condos, whoever the developer was, yellow slicker condos, kind of poking an eye on fate, but... Uh, but having maybe some fun with it. That's a great story, and it's got lots of classic motifs in it. Lots of folklore surrounding mines. Anytime you have occupations that are dangerous and that you can't always predict, you're going to get legends about them, and also legends that sort of indicate how can you predict the dangers. You know, if you think about how those legends, again, talking about how these stories work, um, if you see something weird, if you're working there, you're going to try to be more careful. You're going to pay attention more. So sometimes the stories function as little wake-up calls, and sometimes they're channels for our anxiety about working in a dangerous area. I love the yellow rain slicker. I want them in matching boots, too, in my mind. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's well, thanks for that, Christine. Appreciate that. Um, and we had a call uh, from Luann in Leeds, who says that the Silver Reef Museum in Leeds 
a ghost from the 1880s will be returning to tell their stories. So this is an event in, in Leeds. I, I uh, sent out an appeal for what's the event in your area. And so Luann says that in Leeds at the Silver Reef Museum, uh, ghosts from the 1880s will be returning to tell their stories. That's Friday at 7 p.m. I'll give the number here for reservations, uh, 845-879-2254. We'll put this on our website as well. So uh, appreciate uh, that. Many events uh, coming up. I wonder, uh, Jeannie, if I get you to tell the very brief version of this haunted cave, this cave in Japan. You yeah. have a chapter on this. This is a great story. This is from Folklore Spiel Ellis' chapter on Japanese legends. Um, and this is from the writings of Lafcadio Hearn, who was a early 19th century folklorist. And basically, there's a cave that he went to in Japan, and you go in by boat, and there are all these little shrines, and it's stone, stone stacks. And they're um, basically parents' appeals to deities for their children who died young. So lots of emotion there, lots of tragedy, and it's tragedy made visible through these little shrines that are left. And there are also little footprints that people see there. And if you knock over the shrines, you have to, um, you should do extra, because when, when you knock over them, the, the children have to come and set them up again, and you create more work for them. And so of course he was trying not to, and he knocked over some, and oh, he boy. saw the footprints. And mm. there, I find the legends involving children um, really poignant, and often speaking to how hard that grief is to deal with, and how we need to make it material, or at least we need to verbalize it. So people were making it material with the shrine. Still goes on, you know. It's still common in parts of Japan. You can see this this legend continuing. We are out of time. Uh, very interesting stories in the book. Uh, it's out from University of Utah Press, Putting the Supernatural in Its Place. And Jeannie Thomas is the editor. Uh, she is the head of the USU English Department. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Uh, and Lynn McNeil is with the USU Folklore Program and contributed an essay on uh, the Internet, Supernatural Internet, uh, for this uh, volume. Uh, thanks so much. Thank you. Uh, by the way, uh, if you go to... Uh, uh, TEDx USU website soon you'll you'll see Lynn McNeil's talk that's right the TEDx uh, 2015 uh, there are events coming up the USU Folklore Club is having an event on Friday at 6 p.m. at the Logan City Cemetery they'll gather at the Weeping Woman statue uh, Lynn McNeil on Friday 5 p.m. will be giving a talk at the USU Anthropology Museum uh, and the Center for Women and Gender is presenting a brown bag lunch series. Uh, Jeannie Thomas will be giving a talk uh, there on Thursday at noon in Merrill Kazir Library Room uh, 208. Many other events uh, happening, and uh, we very much appreciate you joining us uh, today. Hope you have a good and safe Halloween. Um, we uh, Just as a plug for tomorrow's program, we have a poet and filmmaker and writer Sherman Alexi. He'll be in studio and hope you'll join us with your question or comment then. Thanks for listening today. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. Getting all the nutrients you need on a daily basis can be a difficult task. Incorporating multivitamins can help you get those key nutrients into your diet. Get the right vitamin that includes 100% of the recommended daily allowances and includes all of the recommended vitamins and minerals. Take the pill that's right for you. Vitamins are found in smaller pills, chewables, or powders. Eat something. Take vitamins with food can help avoid getting an upset stomach. Keep track of what you take. This can help you keep track of over or under consumption of specific vitamins. Taking a multivitamin can give your body the nutrients it lacks, keep you healthy by growing, healing and repairing cells, improve your immune system, keeping you bone and heart healthy, and giving you an overall sense of balance and wellness. This is Nicole Jackson with the Be Well program at Utah State University. Remember to live well, work well, and be well. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.